everybody. Welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focused in security policy and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. So, here we are. This week, more charges drop against Donald Trump, this time around his involvement in the plot to overturn the election of 2020, which, of course, culminated in the insurrection of January 6, 2021. So, in this episode of the show, I'm going to talk about those charges, but we're also going to talk about how it is that it took so long to get these charges. Their significance, the implications of their timing, some of, of course, some of the inevitable responses to them. But, first, sorry, it is basically my job to say this. If you haven't already, please be sure to follow the show on whatever platform you listen to podcasts, and perhaps even more importantly, please do go ahead and share the show with anybody else you think might get something out of it. <laughs> I should say today, particularly, anyone else whose reaction to the big news this week looks something like, great, about goddamn time. People often talk about where they were when some big historical event happened. I remember where I was on January 6, 2021. I was walking across Barcelona in an unexpected state of elation over the fact that the Democrats had made up for the various mistakes we made in the legislative races in the 2020 elections by pulling a rabbit out of a hat and somehow winning both of the Senate runoff races in Georgia, which meant that the Democrats, albeit narrowly, would control the White House and both houses of Congress, which would obviously put us in a much better position than I realistically expected we were going to be in to start cleaning up after four years of Donald Trump running Washington. I remember walking across Barcelona in the late afternoon, you know, time difference, and feeling that sense of elation and optimism turn to, well, a whole bunch of less pleasant emotions as I started getting news and seeing footage of the first, really the first attack on the U.S. Capitol since the War of 1812. And we all became aware over time of the individual, how the hell did this happen, stories from the event itself. You know, the rioters parading freely through the Capitol, waving flags, celebrating various losers and scum, Donald Trump, the Confederacy. We learned how they smashed windows, wiped shit on the walls, broke into the offices of Congress people and planned to kill individual members. We saw the video of one lunatic dressed up as a face-painted Viking parading around the Senate, rifling through senators' desks, and a deranged mob chanting their desire to lynch the insufficiently fanatical vice president. We became aware of these things over time. Like, you know, a lot of it we became aware of as a result of the incredible work of the House January 6th committee about a year ago, during which time we increasingly became aware as well of the extent of the plot behind the scenes by Trump and various of his lieutenants to overturn the election. Those committee hearings made it clear that the attack on the Capitol was not an isolated incident, but actually the latter stages of a failed coup attempt. We learned about organized plots to replace electoral votes with fake ones in favor of Trump. We learned about efforts to spread lies about voter fraud. We learned about attempts to get state elections officials to fabricate votes in swing states. We learned a bunch of other things that seem like they're probably illegal and at least in profound violation of the spirit of American democracy. So right after supporters of the former president launched effectively a terrorist attack on the Capitol, a number of elected Republicans, several of whom had been slavishly, pathetically, comically subservient to Trump, even when doing so flew in the face of what they'd claimed to previously stand for, a bunch of them seemed like they were finally done. Like, 
It was time to do what they all had been desperate to do on November 7th, 2016, the day before Trump lucked into an Electoral College victory, which is to say, put him in their rearview mirror and pretend that it was all just a bad, kind of weird dream. The House impeached Trump, with even a few Republicans in the House voting to do the right thing. The Senate held a trial, and as I say, for a few shining moments there, it looked like Republicans might actually be ready to, you know, collectively, sort of at least, do the right thing. But then, they, 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 they just couldn't. Kevin McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago to talk to Trump, and then got pulled into an awkward photo op that made him look like Trump's bitch. Lindsey Graham got yelled at by Trump supporters in an airport, and, well, that was just too much for them, apparently. Yes, we actually got the most votes for conviction ever in an impeachment from the party of the guy being impeached. But it wasn't enough. It didn't reach the two-thirds of senators required for a conviction. Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, who really was the one guy who could have put the final nail in Trump's coffin but then decided not to for some reason, came straight out and said at that moment that there are other ways of holding former presidents accountable. Ways like the criminal justice system. That was in early 2021. So then in the time since, as we all saw Trump starting to rehabilitate himself, his public image, as... We then learned so much more about the incredible violations of the law and of basic American values that Trump engaged in through, again, the great work of the January 6th committee. A bunch of us have wondered, then where the hell is the criminal justice system? I have to admit, I've always been one of the people confused. First by the choice of Merrick Garland to be the Attorney General, and then by how slowly the Department of Justice under Garland has moved toward, in any way, looking into the crimes committed under the previous administration. Now, I'll just quickly deal with both of those. First to the question of Garland as AG. I mean, there's no disputing that he's a good guy. Like, Merrick Garland as a lawyer is, you know, certainly not some random personal injury ambulance chaser with a handlebar mustache who you see in the advertisements of the local bus stop. I mean, he's a deeply experienced and serious guy with a multi-decade resume as a very fair-minded and well-respected judge. But that's sort of the thing. Like, yes, he was a prosecutor back in the day, but his persona now seems a lot more grounded in the sort of unbiased judge kind of role. And as attorney general in an adversarial legal system, his role is to prosecute. Unless I'm misunderstanding his role, which I just want to say as a non-lawyer, I fully admit is very possible. Like, he's obviously super qualified for the job, but his main calling card is being milk toast. Like, that's why Obama nominated him for the Supreme Court back in 2016 when the Republicans had the Senate. And like, okay, yeah, there's some poetic justice that he got to become AG now after a Supreme Court seat to which he realistically, effectively was entitled, got stolen from him by the Republicans, but I don't know. I mean, I can, I can also see Biden having wanted somebody like him as AG because it would make it harder to accuse Biden of having the Department of Justice go after political opponents when it came to prosecute Trump for the crimes he committed in plain sight. But they were always going to accuse him of weaponizing the Justice Department anyway, so who gives a shit? I will say, especially as someone who wanted somebody else as vice president, you know who would have been fun to watch as AG right now? Kamala Harris. But I digress. To the second point of being like confused as to how DOJ could have taken this long, I don't know if this is Garland's fault per se. I mean, I've heard it pointed out often that federal investigations of this sort are complicated and tend to take a while. But on the other hand, 
After just nine months on the job, special counsel John Doe, I mean, Jack Smith, huh, Trump's right, that does sound like a fake name. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't help it. What I mean to say is <laughs> that uh, in a pretty short period of time, special counsel Jack Smith has investigated and brought charges into, I think, largely unrelated investigations into very distinct sets of crimes. It's taken nine months of Smith investigating January 6th for him to bring the charges on which Trump was indicted this week. Nine months. More than 30 months have passed since January 6th, 2021. And yeah, maybe a decent bit of the information Smith is going to be using came from the great work of the January 6th committee. But, and again, I'm totally open to the possibility that as a non-lawyer, I am wrong to think this is weird, but... If it really is the case that a decent bit of the information these charges are built on, you know, comes from the work of the January 6th committee, is it normal for the DOJ to basically rely on Congress to do the kinds of investigations necessary to charge crimes? I mean, if only we had some sort of federal bureau that could investigate things. Yeah. So the Washington Post reported earlier this summer that senior officials in the Justice Department and the FBI were super resistant to doing any sort of real investigation around January 6th besides just prosecuting the pawns who broke into the Capitol and rubbed shit on the walls and tried to kill Mike Pence. Quoting from that piece in the Post, More than a year passed before federal prosecutors and FBI agents embarked on a formal investigation into nonviolent efforts within Trump's orbit to steal the 2020 election. A, a year. I mean, you fucking kidding me? To give it a bit more color, the reporting in this piece shows that a year after Trump and his people tried to block the peaceful transfer of power after an American election, a full year after that, the totality of Justice Department resources directed at investigating that consisted of four prosecutors and a couple of investigators from the Postal Service and the National Archives. Hell, the FBI didn't even get in the game until like 15 months after the attack. This feels like a good time to mention that after careful consideration, I've decided that if Rick Wilson, Joe Scarborough, John Heilman, and the Pod Save America guys can all swear every now and again and still put together a decent podcast episode, well, so can I. I don't know, maybe I'll still use the bleep noise every so often. It always makes me laugh. And to the point at hand, I didn't come into this episode planning to rag this much on Merrick Garland. I totally understand that the U.S. Department of Justice is a big and very complicated thing to manage. And it makes sense that one's first you know, couple of months on the job are probably going to be spent trying to find out where the paper clips are kept. But, the, but by the time you've been Attorney General for a year, maybe it's time to start investigating an attempt by the former president to, you know, end American democracy. That reporting in the Post also makes clear that a driving reason for this profound hesitancy to do this part of their job was a worry about looking political. I mean, okay, I get it. When your job is to dispense justice, you want to be very careful to not appear biased. I should also note that in this especially charged environment and the uh, unique nature of Trump and his supporters, nobody wants to be on the receiving end of all the death threats and harassment that would happen when Trump inevitably doxes the people looking into him. But, like, that's the job. I also understand the desire to not set a precedent of, like, criminalizing being president. Like, we don't want to be one of those countries where inevitably you end up with legal problems if you run for office. You know, or just like the state of Illinois where, like, half the recent governors are in prison. But, like, does the guy 
just get to basically do anything he wants because the people in charge of enforcing the law are afraid of looking political? We don't want to set a precedent for prosecuting a former president? Where is the line? I mean, he himself said before the 2016 election, talking about his supporters, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? That I can tell you, believe me. I mean, it looks like he was actually right about just how sick most of his supporters are because despite the crimes for which he's being prosecuted now, along with a host of other deeply fucked up things we all know he's done, polls show him not losing much support within the GOP. Okay, so let's say that he did, one day, just walk out onto Fifth Avenue, borrow the handgun of one of his Secret Service agents, and blow the head off of some random pedestrian. Would we not, would we just not do anything about that? Does the goal of not setting the precedent of prosecuting a former president supersede everything, or are we ever going to draw a line? Well, it appears that now, with the Smith investigation, finally we are. Better late than never. I guess I've kind of buried the lead, but just in case any of my listeners have missed the wall-to-wall -wall coverage the last couple of days, Trump, on top of what he's already federally charged with around his theft of a bunch of classified documents, is now being charged with four very serious crimes in relation to his efforts to overthrow the results of the 2020 elections. I'm not going to go into too much detail as to the specific contents. Some of it is undoubtedly stuff we already knew as a result of the work of the January 6th committee, but the indictment does give some more depth to that, uh, particularly into the underlying conspiracy to overturn the election. It also makes a couple of important points even clearer. One, uh, Trump was fully cognizant of what he was doing and of the fact that it was illegal. He apparently at one point chastised Mike Pence for being, and I quote, too honest. And two, a bunch of the people around him were like very comfortable with the idea of things getting violent. Two examples, besides, of course, the anecdotes of Trump literally TiVoing his favorite footage of the insurrection on the 6th. First, Jeffrey Clark, who was a DOJ official who was really this sort of comically incompetent weirdo who Trump thought about making attorney general in the last couple of days of the administration to help overturn the election. Clark was apparently told, what you're doing trying to overturn the election will cause riots in the streets, to which he said, yeah, well, that's why we have the Insurrection Act. Translated, that basically means, sure, let the majority have voted for Biden oppose us overturning the election that they won. We can just send in the military to put them down. Secondly, there's John Eastman, another lawyer pushing various not-very-legal schemes to mess with the election outcome. He was quoted somewhere saying that violence has often been important before, uh, quote-unquote, in defense of the Republic. Now, these two guys aren't charged in this particular indictment, but, <laughs> well, they're gonna be. There's a lot more that could be said about the specific contents of the indictment, but I want to talk more now about the consequences and, like, what's possibly going to happen next. So, first off, I want to say Jack Smith obviously did a great job both in investigating this and also in how easily digestible this indictment is. But, like, the thing I was complaining about before talking about the indictment itself, the fact that it took us so long to get here, it is kind of a problem. I mean, besides just the principle that you shouldn't be able to orchestrate an insurrection and keep living La Vida Loca down in Mar-a-Lago, you know, golfing, hiding classified documents in the bathroom, besides just the principle that you shouldn't be able to commit a bunch of serious crimes in plain sight and not face consequences for ages, 
it really would have been better for the country if this had happened early enough to basically disqualify Trump from running in the 2024 election. And as a result of this having taken so long, he's had years to reconsolidate support, shape the national narrative, and muddy the waters around January 6th. I should note this... <laughs> Also, you know, I worry makes it more possible that someone brainwashed on a diet of Fox News and Trump tweets might manage to sneak onto the jury and torpedo the whole thing to save the dear leader. Remember, it only takes one member of the jury, and this is the country where the OJ trial happens, so who knows? It would have been a lot harder for Trump to do this muddying of the waters if he was already serving multiple, several decade sentences in a supermax as is likely to happen if he found guilty on even one of the almost 80 federal felonies that he's charged with relating either to his attempted theft of an election or his successful theft of a bunch of highly classified documents. But the fact that he's had all this time to muddy the waters mean that most of the Republican Party is behind him. Now, besides that saying rather a lot about them, and I'm going to resist going down that rabbit hole for now, this has some very real-world consequences. For example... Having had time to consolidate support, Trump is now almost certain to be the Republican nominee for president in the 2024 election. In the unlikely event that he's not, because, you know, it is hard to campaign from prison, anyone who is the Republican nominee will most likely have become so through some sort of dirty deal of promising Trump supporters that this person would pardon him if elected. The delay in this happening also makes it a lot easier for Trump to argue that the whole thing is just a witch hunt, weaponization of the federal government to keep him out of the presidency now that he's running again. I mean, listen to this. Here's Trump's lawyer serving as, you know, my exhibit A, as it were. The government has had three years to investigate this, and now they want to rush this to trial in the middle of a political season. What does that tell you? Pardon the background music. <laughs> I borrowed the audio from CNN. It was a solid interview. Now. Is it true that the charges are only happening now because they're just political and aimed at derailing Trump's candidacy, as his lawyer is trying to argue there? Well, no. Based on that Washington Post story before, they're only happening now because the people whose job it was to bring these charges are so completely paralyzed with fear of being accused of political bias that they sat on their hands for more than a year before they could even bring themselves to launch a serious investigation. Conventional wisdom has it that the reason Trump announced his candidacy for the 2024 election so early is so that if the DOJ got around to announcing charges anytime soon, it would be easier to make this argument that his lawyer's trying to make. <laughs> With as long as the DOJ finally took to get its act together here, <laughs> evidently Trump needn't have bothered. I promise this is going to be the last point that I make bitching about the timing of all of this. The documents case, the other serious federal charges that Trump's facing. That case is scheduled to go on trial, I believe, this coming May? But it's likely to move pretty slowly because, one, accommodations need to be made to hold the trial, which includes a ton of highly classified material, and two, well, the judge is a Trump stooge in a friendly district of possibly America's craziest state. Sorry, Florida, but you've earned it. This case, however, this one for which charges were brought this week, is pretty straightforward. And it's being held in D.C. with a uh, more conventional judge who has actually presided over other January 6th-related cases. But even with all of that, it's quite possible that this will all drag out long enough that there isn't a conclusion before the election, which Donald Trump could win. At which point he could 
launch the project that I described a bit back um, in episode, I think, 43 of basically turning the federal government into a presidential autocracy, including, of course, appointing an attorney general who would obviously throw out the federal charges against Trump. Yeah, okay, sorry, I I'm now definitely on team Garland, probably shouldn't have been the AG pick. The last thing I'm going to do with this episode is talk a bit about the inevitable response to the charges from those who think protecting a failed reality show host is more important than protecting the basic tenets of American democracy. It's becoming clear that the main arguments in Trump's defense are going to be some combination of he legitimately believed all the conspiracy nonsense that he was being fed about the election having been rigged, and even if he didn't, the First Amendment fully protects his right to be a lying sack of shit, so he did nothing wrong by, you know, lying a whole bunch. The trouble with that is, Jack Smith saw this one coming a mile off, as indicated by the fact that he basically dispatches with it in the first pages of the indictment. Quoting directly from the document, quote, The defendant has a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and even claim, falsely, that there had been outcome-determinative fraud during the election and that he had won, unquote. The document goes on to spell out legal means Trump had to challenge the results, that he pursued those and failed, and then... Here again, I'm quoting from the text, Shortly after election day, the defendant also pursued unlawful means of discounting legitimate votes and subverting the election results. In so doing, the defendant perpetrated three criminal conspiracies, at which point the indictment spells out in detail three of the four counts Trump's being charged with, which can basically be summarized as conspiring to defraud the United States and obstruct how votes are collected and counted, conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding, that is to say the certification of the election as was supposed to happen on January 6th, and conspiring to deprive a whole bunch of voters of their right to vote, basically by trying to get their votes thrown out. All of which is to say, it does go rather beyond just Trump lying, so the, yeah, well, he has the right to lie whenever he wants because of the First Amendment defense probably isn't going to cut it. Another thing we're starting to see from Republicans, and I think Trump himself, is it's not his fault. It was the fault of those other guys that I mentioned earlier. Eastman and Clark and Rudy Giuliani. Trump was just listening to his lawyers. Okay, so the problem with this is that, one, the indictment spells out pretty clearly that Trump was fully conscious of what he was doing and that he wasn't supposed to. I did mention that anecdote of him basically accusing Mike Pence of not being crooked enough. And two... Well, Donald Trump has a long history of not listening to his lawyers. He's famously, like, the worst client ever if you're a lawyer, not just because he never pays you. It's going to be hard to sell that, oh, he just did this because he was trying to do what his lawyers told him to. There really isn't, as far as I'm aware, much of a good legal defense against what Trump is being accused of. This is the thing. Trump, for a long time, has gotten away with wildly inappropriate behavior by just being open about it, just doing it in plain view. This has worked because the argument, well, if that was really inappropriate, would he have just done that in public? Actually seems to work on a lot of people. Turns out, though, that it might not work quite as well with federal crimes. So, as there really isn't much of a valid legal defense here, Trump's allies are mostly going to have to rely on a political defense and hope that my dire warnings about the timing thing work out in their favor. And what is that political defense exactly? Remember the last episode where I asked why the Republicans continue in this ridiculous pursuit of the current president's son? This is why. Turns out that the best political defense they can come up with is, I know 78 federal felony counts looks bad, but have you heard of Hunter Biden? The really funny thing is that one of the few minor charges against Hunter Biden is that he lied on a permit to carry a firearm. 
Now, if Hunter really wanted to troll, he could come out and say that if Trump did nothing illegal because the First Amendment gives him the right to spread dangerous lies about the 2020 election as part of a plot to overturn it, then Hunter did nothing wrong because the First Amendment gives him the right to lie on a government form. It's just free expression. In any case, give me a call when Hunter Biden relapses, smokes a bunch of crack, and leads a mob into the Capitol to smear shit on the walls. Because until then, if the best you can come up with to answer this latest round of charges is, but Hunter, well, I wouldn't want to have to be the person trying to keep a straight face while making that argument. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you like the show and want to make sure you don't miss the next episode, subscribe or follow on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. While you're there, if you haven't already, please do me a favor, leave a review and share the podcast with anyone you think might get something out of it. To those who already have, thanks. To those who haven't yet but will, thanks in advance. And as always, thanks to my friend Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork and to everyone else for listening.